chapter 9 this morning in its entirety. Father, as we turn once again to your word, we do pray that you would help us. We come in confidence, Father, that this is, in fact, your word, and that because it is your word, it is imbued with power. You have purposes that you wish to accomplish this morning, and so we pray, Father, that you would do that, that you would work through your word in the lives of those who are far from you. And, Father, in the lives of your people who desire to know and serve you better. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, if you've been with us in our study of Leviticus, then you know that up until this point, all that has gone on has been preparatory to this central event which, as we will see, is the coming of God to his people. God makes an appearance before his people here in Leviticus chapter 9. The sacrifices have been delineated, the priests have been ordained, and the cleansing of the sanctuary and of the people have now made it possible for the Lord to accept the worship of his people. And that's what will begin in this passage that we look at today. The presence of God was often described as the appearance of the glory of the Lord. And that is what we are about to see. The purpose of this inaugural, inaugural I'll get it right, inaugural worship is found in verse 6, where Moses says, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And the outcome was just that. If you look down to verse 23, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. These two passages are the only two places in the book of Leviticus which include the word glory. Now that's significant. That tells us that this is an important chapter. By the sign of this glory of the Lord, which comes in fire, we're told in verse 24 the people could know that because the Lord was present with them, He was receiving their worship. All of the sacrifices, all of the ritual were acceptable to God, and the people knew that because the Lord had made an appearance. This is why we, as the people of God, gather for worship, to behold the glory of the Lord and to know that he has accepted us. The purpose of the tabernacle 
the purposes of the sacrifices was to safeguard the relationship initiated by the Lord with the Israelites. We'll discover through this exposition of this first occurrence of worship in the tent of meeting that we too as Christians enjoy the glory of the Lord and we have full assurance through Jesus Christ that we have been accepted by him and that our worship is acceptable to him. Ministers lead the congregation in worship, approach God through the atoning blood, bring God's word of blessing to the people. Worship leads to the congregation's assurance that the Lord is among them and has accepted them. Now, the first thing we're going to look at here this morning in chapter 9, we see in verses 1 through 6, and that is essentially a call to worship. It came about on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a calf, a bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect, and offer them before the Lord. Then to the sons of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. So they took what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the whole congregation came near and stood before him. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And so Moses, as the chief mediator between God and the people of Israel, followed the Lord's direction by calling for Aaron and his sons and the representatives of the people, the elders of the people, to prepare for the first formal act of worship to take place in the tabernacle. The preparation for all of this goes way back. All the way back to Exodus. If you go back to Exodus in chapter 28, and then prior to that, it's in Exodus where you see the Lord giving instructions concerning the construction of the tabernacle. And then he gives instructions concerning the sacrifices. And he gives instructions concerning the priesthood. And as Israel is coming through the wilderness, they're receiving this. Through the mediation of Moses, God speaks to Moses. Moses passes it on to the people. And they are living in anticipation of this day. When all the preparations are complete and everything comes together and they can begin to worship as God commanded. Moses and Aaron played crucial roles in this worship service, but it must not be forgotten that it is the Lord himself who is giving these instructions, even here 
Moses reminds the people that this is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do. Worship begins then with God's instructions, not with the ideas of men and women. We worship as we do, not because we think it's a good idea to do it this way. We worship as we do because the Word of God tells us how God desires to be worshipped. And as He does that, He tells us here in the New Covenant that He is to be worshipped through the reading and preaching of His Word. He is to be worshipped through the prayers of His people. He is to be worshipped through the singing of praise. He is to be worshipped through the giving of His people. All of God's worship is set out by Him, both Old Covenant and New Covenant. And we do not have the freedom to come to the Lord and say, you know what? I like it this way. I think people would get more out of our worship if we didn't spend so much time reading the Bible. All that prayer stuff, that's a little boring. Maybe if we, can, if we included dance... Maybe if we had some Christian clowns come in, maybe that would help. The Lord says, those are really bad ideas. I've told you how I am to be worshipped. Now, that's not going to look the same in every church. Not every church is going to play the same kind of music but those general elements of worship are what God has established in his word for the new covenant church now you'll recognize right off the bat our worship doesn't look anything like the worship of ancient Israel and of course there's a good reason for that we don't have a tabernacle or a temple but the real reason is we don't need a tabernacle or a temple. The tabernacle and the temple after the tabernacle were designed as places of sacrifice. But sacrifice is no longer necessary because the one true sacrifice is that all the animal sacrifices pointed to has been accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And so there are significant differences between Old Covenant worship and New Covenant worship, but that principle remains. God determines how He will be worshipped. And when we come before the Lord in the proper way, we will be accepted by Him. When we come to Him according to our own human devices, that is not worship which is acceptable to God. In fact, we're going to see in the very next chapter of Leviticus how seriously God takes his worship. Well, 
this service began, we're told, on the eighth day. You see that in verse 1 of chapter 9. That is, the day following the seven days of priestly ordination. That's what we saw last week in chapter 8. The ordination of the priests, of Aaron and his sons at this point, took seven days. On the eighth day, worship begins. And the significance of the eighth day is obvious as you look back through the Scripture the sign of the covenant of circumcision was given. Male children born to the Hebrew people were to be circumcised on the eighth day. The eighth day was also a day of purging an unclean Israelite from his pollution after seven days of isolation. It's striking that the traditional Christian day set aside for worship we call the first day of the week, but that is the eighth day following a seven-day segment of time. If you look at it in the Scripture, it was the day of our Lord's resurrection, the initiation of the new creation that displaced the seven-day creation. The offerings for Aaron as the officiating priest, we're told, consisted of a bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. You see that there in verses 2 and 3. The sin offering was for cleansing. If you've been with us through our study of Leviticus, all of this should be familiar to you. The sin offering was for cleansing from impurities and the burnt offering for atonement. According to the sacrificial regulations of chapters 1 through 7 of Leviticus, the sin offering was required of all worshipers, but the burnt offering was a voluntary offering. And the necessity of offering these animals for Aaron before he could perform his priestly duties underscores for us the limitations of Aaron and his sons. Although they have been consecrated to the Lord, they were persons who still had impurities and still committed sin. The ordination service, which lasted for seven days, included as a part of that service their ritual cleansing, but it was not a once and for all purgation of sin. Aaron and his sons would sin again. The priestly purgation of sin was a daily requirement for them. The priests must first be cleansed of their sin and forgiven before they could adequately intervene on behalf of the people. If they were going to be the mediators for the people, they themselves had to be cleansed, and they had to be cleansed over and over and over and over. Every day they functioned as a mediator for the people. If the high priest sinned against the Lord, the people suffered the guilt of the priest too, unless the priest was purged of his sins. Now, of course, this is what leads us under the new covenant to understand the necessity of Jesus as our high priest. 
Because the epistle to the Hebrews makes this very clear. The difference between the old covenant high priests and Jesus as our high priest is that Jesus did not have to offer sacrifices for his own sin again and again and again and again. Because Jesus himself was that perfect sacrifice without spot or blemish. Jesus, the high priest, and Jesus, the sacrifice, he did it all because he was all. Although Moses spoke directly to Aaron then, he did not speak directly to the people concerning their offerings. He commanded Aaron to provide instructions to the people. And the reason why Moses had Aaron do this was because the intent was that he would elevate the high priest in the eyes of the people. Aaron and his household were of the priestly order. There would not be a Mosaic order of priests. There's an Aaronic order of priests. And so there is this shift taking place. Moses obviously would continue to be a significant character in the life of Israel. God would continue to speak through Moses. But Moses wants the people to understand that the priesthood is something different entirely. The priesthood is not a continuation of a Mosaic office. The priesthood was new. And the priesthood would outlast Moses. Moses would die. Moses would not come into the promised land with the people. But the priesthood would. Priests would carry the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan. Priests would establish worship at the tabernacle wherever God led them as they wandered through the wilderness and then when they came into the land. Priests would conduct sacrifices in the tabernacle and later in the temple far after Moses has left the scene. The service which Aaron would lead was to be a public act of worship. This is why all five of the offerings described in the previous chapters were performed except for the guilt offering. Because the guilt offering, you'll remember, was a private ceremony involving restitution. It was not for the people at large, but for an individual who came confessing a specific sin. Now in verse 4, we have an explanation for the offerings that were given that day. We read there that the sacrifices were to be offered for today the Lord will appear to you. And the Hebrew word translated appear occurs four times in this passage. Three times describing the appearance of the glory of the Lord specifically. Now an appearance of the glory of the Lord was a manifestation, a visible manifestation of God's presence. These appearances are referred to as theophanies. The outward manifestation of God's presence. 
and they would typically involve a visible light or a fire, and that's what happens here. The best known to most of us would be the burning bush, out of which God speaks to Moses. What our passage echoes, however, is the blazing appearance of God at Sinai when he revealed his law to Moses. And the tent here, the tabernacle, was in effect a portable Sinai. The Apostle John described the incarnation of Jesus in similar imagery. <coughs> he says in John chapter 1 and verse 14 that Jesus, the Word, came and, in the English, usually the translation says, dwelt among us. Literally, it says, tabernacled among us. Jesus is a theophany. Jesus is God revealing himself, tabernacling with his people. Our Lord embodied the presence of the glory of the Lord and thus was in his, his own person a tabernacle, a temple. You know, sometimes the Christian community overlooks the importance of sacrifice when coming to the Lord in worship. As we said earlier, we don't witness the slaughter of animals today in our worship services. But our worship is predicated upon the blood sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of sacrifice is always with us in our worship. There is no acceptance and there is no legitimate worship without the spiritual cleansing and forgiveness of sin afforded by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true sacrifice. It is only by God's acceptance of us through Christ's atonement that we can share in the glory of the Lord. Now, the purpose of these sacrifices was to prepare for the coming of that glory, which occurred in dramatic fashion at the conclusion of all of this at the end of the chapter. The fire of the Lord broke forth from the tent of meeting and consumed the smoldering animal portions that had remained on the altar. Look at verse 24. Verse 23, as we read before, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their face. Now, the expression the glory of the Lord was a technical expression for the manifest presence of God among his covenant people, Israel. In essence, the glory of the Lord was equivalent to the person and the name of the Lord. When the glory of the Lord came, the Lord came. And in this manifestation, it was demonstrated by 
fire. Where his glory appears, he is present. The glory was something that could be seen by the human eye and inhabited in a visible cloud. In Exodus chapter 16, we see that. Or as here, in fire. At Sinai, the Lord appeared before the people and spoke from a flaming mountain, and the people's response was, let's not have that again. Moses, from now on, let God speak to you and you speak to us. We don't, we don't, we don't want this face-to-face meeting with God anymore. We can't take it. And so we've got to assume then that as God appears here in his glory, he toned it down a little bit. The Lord's disclosure of himself to his people, however, has its fullest expression in the person of Jesus Christ. By his human incarnation, the glory of God is known to those who believe, and especially through Jesus' death and resurrection, the glory of the Lord becomes manifest. He is the perfect image of the Father. But whereas the majesty of God's glory in the Old Testament often instilled fear in those who witnessed his power and heard his voice, the Lord Jesus comes like one of us. This is what the incarnation is. Jesus comes in humble trappings. He preaches the grace and truth of the kingdom, and he offers invitation We need not fear, because for those who will abide by his invitation, for those who will turn from their sin and trust in him and his work on the cross, Jesus says, come, believe, trust in me, and if you do that, you will be received. And for those who are in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. The presence of the Spirit among us as we worship assures us of both present and future acceptance with God. There is no condemnation and there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus took that condemnation upon himself as a substitute. The fulfillment of the picture which the Old Covenant animal sacrifices were intended to give us. Now after the planning and the gathering of the elements for worship, the priests first underwent a ritual cleansing, a sin offering, as we have read, followed by a burnt offering. And so we read in verse 7 that Moses then said to Aaron, Come to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, that you may make atonement for yourself and for the people. Then make the offering for the people, that you may make atonement for them just as the Lord commanded. So Aaron came near to the altar and slaughtered the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. Aaron's sons presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put some on the horns of the altar and poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar, the fat and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver of the sin offering. He then offered up in smoke on the altar, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
The flesh and the skin, however, he burned with fire outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed the blood to him, and he sprinkled it around on the altar. They handed the burnt offering to him in pieces with the head, and he offered them up in smoke on the altar. He also washed the entrails and the legs and offered them up in smoke with the burnt offering on the altar." So the order of the offerings is significant. Everything we've just read, pretty much, we've seen before. A couple of times. Because you'll remember, the offerings have been described to us already in Leviticus from the perspective of the people and then from the perspective of the priests. So we've seen these offerings spoken of twice already. The sin offering made the worshiper's gifts acceptable for the service of the Lord. Our sin must be dealt with before we can offer ourselves and our gifts to the Lord. To put it in a new covenant context, we must be cleansed by the blood of Christ before we can adequately offer our worship to the Father. The offerings were to remove sin from the priests, and cleanse the altar where they were to function. The death of the animal was a reminder of the costly suffering of an innocent life on account of the priest's sinfulness. Aaron, in accordance with the normal regulations for the sin offering, presented a bull calf, we're told, for himself. He then applied its blood to the altar's four protruding horns at the corners of the altar. He next poured the blood at the base of the altar, signifying that the blood of the victim belonged to God. And the power of life was in the blood, and thus the blood belonged exclusively to God because he is the creator of life. The belief that divine prerogative determines life and death has shaped Western civilization's view of all life as sacred. Now, we're losing that now. But this is the understanding that Christianity brought into Western civilization. And we're seeing this understanding here in this offering. Aaron burned upon the altar the fat, the kidneys, and the lobe of the liver, and the flesh and the hide he carried outside the camp where he burned them up in a designated clean place. Which would have been the first time, by the way, that Aaron had left the tabernacle in seven days. Because you'll remember, as part of the ordination service, he couldn't leave. He had to remain there for seven days so that he and the people were sure that when it came to this moment, he would be qualified to offer a sacrifice for himself. And by completely reducing the animal ash to, to ashes, the sacrifice was demonstrating that Aaron was guilty, and that the animal victim was wholly sacrificed as a complete and utter substitute for him. 
Now, the second animal sacrifice was a ram, and this is for the burnt offering. And this ram is cut into pieces. And the message of that burnt offering was that the person's total self belonged to the Lord. It was a total dedication to the Lord. The high priest himself slaughtered the animal because it was an offering made on his behalf. His sons, as before, caught the blood in a basin and presented the blood to Aaron, and Aaron then cast the blood against the sides of the altar in accordance with the normal procedure for the burnt offering. He was then given the animal's butchered pieces, including the ram's head, all for total incineration on the altar. What remained were the entrails and the legs, and these Aaron washed with water to remove any debris, making them suitable for sacrifice. And these two, in turn, were burned up in the burnt offering. And only after the cleansing of Aaron could these offerings be presented on behalf of the people. In verse 15, we read this, that he presented the people's offering, and he took the goat of the sin offering, which was for the people, and slaughtered it, and offered it for sin like the first. He also presented the burnt offering, and offered it according to the ordinance. Next, he presented the grain offering, and filled his hand with some of it, and offered it up in smoke on the altar, besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he slaughtered the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings, which was for the people. And Aaron, Aaron's sons handed the blood to him, and he sprinkled it around on the altar. As for the portions of fat from the ox and from the ram, the fat tail and the fat covering and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver, they now placed the portions of fat on the breasts, and he offered them up in smoke on the altar, but the breasts and the right thigh Aaron presented as wave offering before the Lord, just as Moses commanded. So now Aaron has offered up sacrifices for himself, which is the preparation that was necessary before he could offer up sacrifices for the people, which is what he does now. For the sin offering, a male goat is sacrificed as a substitute on behalf of the people. The burnt offering for the people included a calf and a lamb, both male yearlings, which Aaron presented according to the regular procedure for burnt offerings. Additional offerings of grain and peace sacrifices followed, both of which were the normal, uh, the, the, a normal part of the sacrificial system, which has been revealed by God to Moses and then to the people. Both of these offerings were voluntary gifts as signs of commitment and thanksgiving to God. The grain offering consisted of fine flour over which was poured oil and was sprinkled with incense. Aaron took a handful of flour as a memorial portion, which he placed on top of the morning's burnt offering, and he burned that up on the altar. And lastly, he took the animals for the peace offering, and he slaughtered the ox and the ram. And as in the former cases, the blood of the victims was thrown against the side of the altar. 
And these are sacrifices which also provided for the daily living of the priests. As they would receive some of this, it would not be totally burnt up. As we come to the end of our passage this morning, Moses wraps all of this up in verses 22 through 24. Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people, and he blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So Aaron comes out, we're told, and he lifts up his hands toward the people and he blessed them. Worship resulted in a blessing for God's people. And Aaron invoked a blessing with uplifted hands, we're told. We're not told what he said, but perhaps it's similar to the blessing that we find in the book of Numbers, which we often use as a benediction here. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Perhaps that was it. The posture of the uplifted hands in prayer indicates that the Lord was the recipient of the supplications offered by the praying person. It wasn't as if, you know, Aaron was raising his hand so the blessing would come down and then kind of deflect to the people. It was a common posture of prayer. Offering prayer up to God as visualized by uplifted hands. The psalmist declares, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And as the priests ministered before the Lord, they had this duty of invoking blessings upon the people. So Moses joins Aaron, and they go into the tent, and as they come out of the tent, they proclaim another blessing. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, then the glory of the Lord appeared to the people. Now today, through the ministry of reconciliation based in the blood of Christ, Christians receive and declare the peace that Christ affords to all of those who trust in Him. This peace is not material prosperity, but spiritual prosperity. When we worship the Lord, we receive the blessing of God's presence, and when we depart the worship service with the joy and comfort of knowing that God's favor rests upon us, the worship service continues because we go in worship. Worship becomes who we are, not only what we do. 
Worship is that which not only takes place here, but takes place in every aspect of our lives. We worship God as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers. We worship God in the workplace. We worship God in our community. We worship God as people of the church in relation to one another. Everything that we do is worship. The purpose of the inaugural worship service that we're finding here in Leviticus chapter 9 was fulfilled by the appearance of God proving to the people that the Lord indeed resided among them. It's an amazing thing. The worship of the congregation at Sinai was rooted in blood offerings. The efficacy of the blood's atonement that purged and reconciled the people ensured that the Lord was present among them according to his promise. The promise he gave in Exodus chapter 29, there at the tent of meeting, I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. And now the people had full, uh, full confidence in the adequacy of Aaron's priesthood. God had accepted the mediation of Aaron and the offerings of the congregation. And as a result, he has appeared. For us as Christians, we have a more secure acceptance with God since his presence in our lives and in the church universal are guaranteed by the sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ and the indwelling of his spirit with which we are sealed. The writer to the Hebrews affirmed that the sacrifice and the mediatory role of Jesus was perfectly offered and perfectly accepted by God. This is what we see in the resurrection of Jesus, that God accepted the sacrifice. And the author of Hebrews says this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. When we meet to worship, we meet in the name of the Lord based on the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is no basis for our acceptance by God aside from Christ. It is for this reason that all peoples from different ethnicities and languages and cultures have a common place at the foot of the cross. The embodiment of God's presence among his people is in the body and person of our Lord Jesus Christ, not in any physical building or social strata or creedal statement. Now, I want you to see one more thing before we close this morning. Look at the end of verse 24. How did the people respond to all of this? All the people... All that they had seen resulted in their spontaneous joy and praise. They shouted, and they fell on their face. Their response was both vocal and visible. 
At the sight of God's glory, they shouted, and then they humbly fell down on their faces. A similar response had occurred at the inauguration of the temple when the people declared, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So the worship of God resulted in both praise, that's the shouting, and humility. They fell on their faces. There was a joyful acclamation followed by a hushed silence. And this is the appropriate reaction of those who have witnessed the glory of God. Whether we are in public worship or private devotions, our response to God must be characterized by praise. We must worship enthusiastically and wholeheartedly, but also informed by our knowledge of the awe-inspiring God that we serve. We must not mistakenly think that we are free to treat God casually when we come into worship. When we worship God, we are not coming before our buddy. We are not coming before the man upstairs. We are coming before the God of the universe. John Stott, in his book, The Incomparable Christ, tells this story, and we'll conclude with this. There, once, there was a sculptor once, so they say, who sculpted a statue of our Lord. And people came from great distances to see it, Christ in all his strength and tenderness. They would walk all around the statue, trying to grasp its splendor, looking at it now from this angle, now from that. Yet still its grandeur eluded them until they consulted the sculptor himself, who would invariably reply, there is only one angle from which this statue can be truly seen. You must kneel. How often do we hear people demanding that God bow to them? That God kneel to them? My God wouldn't do that, they say. If God wants me to believe in Him, then He's got to do this and this and this and this. Look at the evil in the world. Look at the wars. Look at the disease. I can, can't understand why God would allow these things. And if I can't understand it, I'm not going to believe it. And what people who say those kinds of things don't understand is they've got the wrong posture. They imagine that they stand over God demanding to place their criteria upon him when the only appropriate posture for a creation is to kneel before his creator. What's the posture of your heart this morning? If you want to come before the God of all creation, you do not come demanding things from him. You do not come as his judge. You come in humility, kneeling. Or like those in ancient Israel, on your face. Father, give us hearts of humility. 
praising you and rejoicing in what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ, and the gospel of grace. But, Father, falling on our face in recognition that you alone are God. And our proper place is on our face before you. Do this, we ask, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.